This week on the show, we discuss NetBSD 9.0. The release process has started. We look at XArcs a little bit closer. Then we tell you a tale of two spell checkers. We look at the second part of the adapting Triforce AFL for NetBSD. We also look at closer or take a closer look at exploiting a no-name kernel uh, vulnerability for FreeBSD and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 311, Conference Gear Breakdown. Recorded for the 14th of August, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Boschke. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. We have some nice things in there, not just the usual headlines and other sections, but also something special that people have asked uh, a while ago, and we thought, oh, we might as well take them up on that. Uh, but that's a little bit later. First, it's headlines this week, and we have NetBSD 9.0. The release process has started. Yeah, and they have uh, quite a few uh, interesting things available. This might be um, something we might see at a future conference, but for now we have the um, announcement on the NetBSD announce mailing list uh, from Maya Rashish, and uh, goes like the following. If you have been following source-changes, you may have noticed the creation of the NetBSD 9 branch. It has some really exciting items that we worked on. First thing there is the new ARCH64 architecture support uh, with symmetric and asymmetric multiprocessing support, aka big.little, and <laughs> support for running 32-bit binaries, as well as UEFI and ACPI support, always good to have, and support for SBSA slash SBDR, the server class hardware. Oh, very cool. One more architecture on NetBSDs uh, under their belt. But yeah, the... the Big that little stuff is quite interesting, uh, especially having a scheduler that can understand uh, that you have some fast cores and some slow cores. Will be interesting to watch that. Um, then there's the FTTization of many ARM boards. So that's the uh, flattened device tree. It's a way of describing uh, what hardware exists on something like a Raspberry Pi to the operating system. Yeah, so that they know what um, peripheral peripherals are connected and on what, what what's on the board. Yeah, so like in your regular x86 computer, you have ACPI as a way for the computer to ask the hardware what's there um, and basically get a list of all the devices that are there. But on these little single board computers, they don't really have that. That's why there's FDT, the flattened device tree. Okay, so the 32-bit generic kernel lists 129 different DTS configurations. And the 64-bit generic 64 kernel is 74 different DTS configurations, so that's quite something already. And all supported by a single kernel without requiring per-board configuration, so you don't need to run a certain kernel for that specific board, which could be a big explosion in, in configurations. It's just one mm -hmm. generic kernel, either 32-bit or 64-bit, and that has the bits in there to detect what kind of board it is. Yeah, that's... Uh quite useful to have just a i remember when previously got to having a lot of different arm stuff supported by a generic kernel it made a big difference so one kernel to rule them all and uh then there's the graphics driver update always good to have matching linux 4.4 adding support for up to kb lake based intel graphics devices so that's good to have and of course zfs has been updated to a modern version and seen many bug fixes they don't write what kind of version they ported from freebsd um, I know the initial effort was based on a version from 
early 2018, I think. Um, but I think they've caught up further. I'll have to actually go and investigate a little bit and see where they are. Um, but I think they're a, not far from like FreeBSD 11.0 or something like that. Ooh, okay. So getting up to, to basically useful uh, versions of ZFS. Mm, that are uh, stable enough or production ready. Yes, it'll be interesting to uh, talk to them about the you know post-open ZFS world and so on. Mm, yeah, whether they want to pull in from upstream at one point or from FreeBSD. Sadly, it's a little late for them. If this effort had started a bit sooner, they should have maybe been one of the second test cases for this. But uh, They have a bit of catching up to do still, but it's good to see that ZFS is on NetBSD as well and maturing. Then there's new hardware accelerated virtualization via NVMM. So that's their, um, that's the one that's a backend for QMU, right? The hypervisor, yeah. They have like they have like three different hypervisor efforts going on at once. <laughs> mm. But yes, I think NVMM is a accelerator for QMU, kind of like KVM, uh, and then they have also a port of Intel's HAXM, which is uh, a different backend for QMU, but is uh, HAXM itself is kind of cross-platform. It works across. Uh, I think it's Windows, Linux, and NetBSD and Mac. Um, and so that one's also interesting. Uh, yeah, so then there's NPF performance, the new PF or the NetBSD PF. Um, they have performance improvements and bug fixes and the new lookup algorithm, uh, THMAP, uh, is now the default. So I know that George Neville Neal will give a uh, talk on NPF at uh, EuroBSDCon. And that's certainly interesting to see. Then they list uh, NVMe performance improvements. Always good. Yeah, I think NVMe is kind of pushing performance bounds in every operating system just because uh, hyper-parallel and just really high speed. Yeah, definitely uh, good to have in your system. Then they have optional kernel ASLR support and partial kernel ASLR for the default configuration. Yeah, so you have the option of full ASLR, uh, but the default is just partial to avoid... uh, making it harder to debug and any performance penalty. And then some of the kernel sanitizers we covered in a couple of BSD Now episodes. Uh, K-Leak, detecting memory leaks. K-San, detecting memory overruns. And then KubeSan, K-U-B-San, uh, detecting undefined behavior. Uh, so all of these um, make uh, for, di- for different test cases, for different scenarios. Uh, and it's good to have those uh, sanitizing the kernel a little bit. Uh, they have been used together with continuous fuzzing via the Syscaller project to find many bugs that were fixed. Yeah, we uh, reported about that uh, uh, in a number of BSD Now episodes, I remember. Yeah, it was uh, interesting to get to see how some of that works. Uh, Mark Johnson gave a presentation uh, at the Waterloo FreeBSD hackathon about using Syscaller on FreeBSD, uh, and it was interesting to see. Uh, further in the list is the removal of outdated networking components such as ISDN and all of its drivers. Yeah, ISDN still, it's had its high time, and I guess it's... Uh... I think that ended a while ago, so yeah. <laughs> it's good that it's out of the system, so it's not uh, loaded too much with old craft. So, then the installer is now capable of performing GPT UEFI installation. Ah, yes, with these fu- future systems only being UEFI capable, it's better to have that, and GPT as well. Then they have dramatically improved support for userland sanitizers, as well as the option to build all of NetBSD's userland using them for bug finding. So you can go on the hunt yourself. 
And then they have some update in the graphics user land. Uh, Mesa was updated to 18.3.4, and LLVM Pipe is now available to several architectures providing 3D graphics even in the absence of a supported GPU. They ask that everyone's testing. So we try to test NetBSD, they write, as best as they can. Uh, But your testing can help NetBSD 9 to become a great release. Please test it and let them know of any bugs that you find. And the binaries are available uh, in our show notes. Uh, They are linked and there to the NetBSD org website. Yeah. Uh, So next we have a little uh, Medium post about using Xargs. So he says, Xargs is probably one of the most difficult to understand of the Unix command arsenal. And of course, just means that it's one of the most useful too. So for a quick bit of background, the Xargs utility takes a list of arguments on standard input. And then generally what it does is it takes that list and it breaks it down. Um, If you've ever tried to do something like rm star in a directory, and it says too many files or argument list too long, you can only put so many uh, commands or uh, files, file names in a command before that command line is too long for the kernel buffer. But it's not the number of items, it's the length of each of those file names. And so it's kind of dynamic. So what Xargs does is let you give it the whole list and it will break it up into uh, the longest possible commands. So, it'll, you know, if you do that, pipe it into Xargs and then rm, it will delete as many files as it can at once and, you know, run rm a second or third time if it has to to deal with the list. Um, But you can do other things, like if you do the dash n flag, you can say, you know, do 15 at a time or something, uh, and lots of other options. Anyway, back to the article. It says, I discovered a handy trick that I thought was worth a share. Uh, Please note that there are probably other or better ways to do this, uh, but I did my Stack Overflow research and found nothing better. So they say, using Xargs to back-reference command line arguments, even post, said, grep, etc. So Xargs, at least now uh, I've mostly used it, is handy for taking more um, some number of lines of input and doing work on each of those. So he says, this is an example of how to find files matching a certain pattern and rename each of them. It sounds so trivial, and it is, but it demonstrates a cool trick. Although I will explain why it's always not great. So they're doing ls, grepping for any files that contain aaa, then piping that into sed, uh, and basically printing it twice, uh, but the second time replacing aaa with bbb. Then they pipe that list into xargs-n2. So this will try to put uh, two things on the output of each line. So it will print two file names, and then two file names, and then two file names. Uh, rather than normally what it would do is print all the list as one line unless it was too long and then it would break it. Then they're piping that into Xargs again, uh, but with the flag uh, capital L. Uh, capital L1, uh, which is called the utility for every number lines read, in this case one, so that uh, it will run it once for each line rather than combining lines. Uh, because by doing the dash L1 there, it means that if you change the number in the previous thing, it will always do that many commands. And they're running uh, bash dash C move $0 to $1. 
And so the output is this would actually find the three files named file AAA1, 2, and 3, and rename them to file BBB1, 2, and 3. Now, there's some problems with that. Doing ls and grep, you can get uh, weirdness. If file names have spaces in them and stuff, it can cause you problems, uh, and so on. So the better way to do that is probably to use the find command uh, and you know find any files that contain AAA. Um, and to deal with the spaces, there's a, a cool trick. The find command defaults to printing out the list of matching files. But if you do dash print zero, all one word, um, it will print them out separated by a null byte, which is something you can't have in a file name. And so when you do that, when you pipe it into xargs, if you give it the argument dash zero, it will know that everything up until a null byte is all one file name. So just because there's a space in it doesn't mean two separate files. It could mean that's all one file. And this is how you can make this safe to do on file names that might have um, spaces or other weird characters in them. Yeah, just in case you are not uh, fully aware what kind of uh, content your files have and want to be on the safe side. But yeah, doing uh, find and all your stuff dash print zero and pipe that into xargs dash zero and feed it to a command is quite nice. Other interesting thing you can do with xargs is the capital P flag and a number will run that number of commands in parallel. So if you need to delete a lot of files, if you do find on them, pipe it into xargs like that and use like dash n16 dash capital P eight, it will run eight RMs at once, each one deleting 16 files. Because if you, if you only do one file at a time, you'll spend too much time starting and stopping RM. If you do too many files at a time, if you might run out of files, uh, like if you're doing 128 files on each RM, you're going to go through your list of 5,000 files awfully quickly. So finding the right mix there, uh, you can run a lot of RMs in parallel, um, but each one having a decent amount of work. Yeah. So you might as well let the other CPUs do a little bit of work than just the one spinning up all the time. <laughs> uh, especially if you're deleting large files in ZFS, it can take a little bit for each one. And sometimes just deleting multiple files in parallel can get it done faster. So me, it, I, my biggest problem with XArcs is writing it. I mostly, at the first time, write XRACs instead of XArcs. So that's a common typo. But then I figure, ah, okay, I didn't do something wrong in the actual command line. It's just the typo. <laughs> For me, it's remembering the difference between capital I and capital J. Um, so the way XARGs works is you run it, you have all your switches, and then the last argument is a command, and it's going to append all the file names onto it. But um, sometimes you need to do something to the file where file name you want it to substitute isn't the last thing on the command line. And so that's where the, the percent sign thing comes in. Uh, but I think when you're doing it parallel, capital I and capital J are different. And I, I don't remember off the top of my head which one's which. Mm, that's why there's a man page. So I will admit, it's one of those commands I often have to look at the man page, but the man page always has the answer right there. And yes, I've constructed all kinds of great XARG stuff. Even one where I used the find command to find all the files, uh, all of these XML files, then some grep uh, to pick out one of the statements in the XML that has a file name in it, uh, strip out files that are not videos, 
giving me then just a list of video files uh, and then feeding that into Xargs and saying, tell the application I would like to purge this list of video files. Uh, so I'm combining you know, a whole bunch of different commands in there. Yeah, that's the, the nice thing about the Unix shell that you can just add another pipe, just one more. <laughs> well, yes, because uh, my first reaction when seeing the command they're running here is like, why wouldn't you use a bash for loop across star AAA star rather than doing ls grep? Yes, that you can save this first pipe, yeah. Well, it's it's not even about saving the pipe. It's that, you know, ls, depending on, it can depend on the environment variables and stuff. It might print columns instead of just a list. And there's a bunch of other, you know, some if, if you do ls-l or something, it could have a longer version and, you know, people alias commands and stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, lots of times where I wouldn't actually like them to do that. But the said is nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can definitely comment not on that Medium post and uh, get, provide some better tips or some shorter command line. Yeah, because I admit, if I was presented with the same problem, which I've actually have been many times, um, I often do a suboptimal one with a shell loop where I would end up running said once on each file instead of on the list of files, which isn't as good, obviously. Uh, but Yeah, first you make it work and then you make it faster. Well, it, I'm, I'm going to loop over 100 files. It, it's going to make a difference of a number of milliseconds which way I do it. If I'm not going to be doing this once a minute, then it probably doesn't matter. All right, it's time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have a tale of two spell checkers from Package Source. This might sound a little bit... Uh, weird, but this is exactly the stuff that we want in this episode or in this show. Um, it starts like this. This is a transcript of the talk uh, the author gave at Package Source Con 2019, which we covered last week and just briefly mentioned that it happened. And um, it's about spell checkers, but there are much more general software engineering lessons that we can learn from this case study. Uh, the reason the author got into the subject was all that uh, paternal leave or yeah, paternal leave last year, when he finally had some more time to spend working on package source. Uh, is that what paternity leave is about, by the way? Ah, there you go. Um, <laughs> it was a tiny item in the enormous to-do file on the top of the source tree, and that made him go into this rabbit hole. Okay, so here's the short history of spell checker. Spell. The oldest spell checker, spell, appeared in version 6.18 to Unix, but it was actually written before that in 1975. Uh, the great Doug McIlroy, who's also the inventor of the concept of the pipe, by the way, uh, worked, uh, worked on Spell, added to Unix, and wrote a 1982 paper. Um, then today, NetBSD still contains a version of Spell in the base system. Yeah, I think Spell was one of the original examples of using a pipe. Yeah, so here's a word. Check it. Spelling. Yeah, here's another one. Um, so say that Spell is not user-friendly is an understatement. You give it a text or a trough file to check and it outputs a list of all the misspelled words on standard out. Uh, it supports both kinds of languages, British and American. And in American mode, it flags all British spelling as incorrect and vice versa. This includes uh, verbs ending in dash I-Z-E, eyes, uh, needing to be written with an I-S-E ending, which is highly questionable form of linguistic point of view too. Ooh, okay, here starts the linguistics. Uh, it really depends if you default to American or British. <laughs> 
Okay, then there's iSpell and A-Spell. Next came a program called iSpell, which span, uh, stands for Interactive Spell. Uh, its main innovation was interactive operation. It would stop when it found a misspelled word and presented you with suggestions for what you meant. Uh, you choose the correct spelling, and iSpell replaces it in the text. It supports different languages, and there is a comprehensive set of dictionaries. And then there's A-Spell, Advanced Spell, question mark, uh, set out to replace iSpell as the standard spell checker. Its main distinctive feature was that its suggestions are far better than the ones that iSpell provides, even better than Word 97, woohoo, uh, as the documentation claims. Uh, it also understands encodings, including UTF-8, which is a big deal for most languages. Uh, and both iSpell and A-Spell are in active use today. The dictionary formats are different. Ah, so that's one of the discrepancies. Okay, so now then there's uh, a little section on a digression on agglutinating languages. So uh, imagine that you would like to spell check a text that is written in Finnish. The problem with writing a dictionary for Finnish, though, is the near infinite number of words that it would need to contain. It is an agglutination. Oh, well, it's already a difficult word here. Agglutination. Agglutinating <laughs> language. Cool. Which means that you can stick words together without a space. Ah, it's like German. Excellent. That's my that's my language I'm going to learn. Um, as an example, consider the word... Oh, wow. Sorry. Which is composed of individual words for plant, room, and phenomenon. And means greenhouse effect. Yeah, so, th so the, the Finnish word for greenhouse effect is plant room phenomenon, which is kind of literal. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's close, yeah. <laughs> so such composites do not obey vocal harmony rules. Indeed, this is one way to see what a separation is. In addition, there are also 15 different cases for the noun. A number of prepositions is replaced by case, as in a suffix. And some cases use the strong stem, some of the weak stem of the word, etc., yeah, that's why I couldn't figure out where one word ends and one uh, starts. So what do you have to do if you would like to keep dictionary as small as possible? Easy. You take a team of linguists and have them carefully model all the rules of world of word construction as a library. Such a thing exists, in fact, for Finnish, for Kayo, for Kaiko, Voiko, Voiko, sorry, Turkish, Zemberek, and for Hungarian, Hanspel. Yeah, I heard of Hanspel. Uh, Hanspell is particularly interesting. While it does contain special word formation rules for Hungarian, it's also an excellent spell checker for more languages. You can use a spell dictionaries, but it's faster and gives even better suggestions, apparently. So using Hanspell is a fairly popular choice among users, no matter what language. And then you talk a little bit more about eats more abstractions and uh, uh, a messy enchant to transition. Uh, but then it goes into a package source land, a backend package source. He tried to make uh, Enchant 2 the only Enchant version in the tree and failed. As stated above, almost no software has explicit support for checking Enchant-2-PC. Uh, so they resorted to a trick not to have to patch all the configure scripts and um, there's a little bit of code for it and make files. So they basically symlink uh, Enchant-2.PC to Enchant.PC. So have a single package build and then they can do that because no Enchant 1 files are present in the tree. Uh, but what broke the whole thing was PHP. Of course. Uh, PHP enchant supports only enchant1. Worse, it translate the entire API, including those deprecated bits, so uh, to PHP. 
Huh. So there's no way to make its use in the newer version. If you were to remove the APIs, they are no longer provided. Software using PHP-Enchant might break at runtime. This is not acceptable for web applications. So this is where they're stuck. And yeah, then they have a general advice for library authors. Uh, yeah, in spite of a conclusion, they would like to offer some general advice if you are in the author or maintainer of a library. The most important is this. An incompatible V2 of a library is like a new product. Yes, importantly, this means that if you stop maintaining version 1, the moment you release version 2, it is as if you had abandoned your library and created a new one. Think of other projects that depend on you as customers. That's their advice there. Think about migration paths. Think about the cost-benefit ratio of an upgrade to your customers. Consider sending pull requests to your customers. If you look at package source, Debian, etc., it is easy to see what other projects depend on your library. Many of them are on GitHub. All of them probably have a way of sending patches. Send them a patch to upgrade the dependencies. Do the work for them. Otherwise, you're developing for no one. Yeah, because then it's unlikely that your new library, as good as it might be, will ever be adopted. Yeah, nobody wants to be in, you know, Python 3 land forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so provide a path forward. It took them like, like 10 years to get anybody to adopt Python 3? <laughs> well, it, it took a while, yeah. And then burn all the past bridges because uh, we only want people to run the newer version. Uh, so next up, we have part two of a, uh, adapting the Triforce AFL, uh, which is uh, a way of doing a different way of doing fuzzing, uh, to NetBSD part two. Uh, so this is a post by uh, Aikul Pilali, uh, who's a GSOC student for 2019, and they say I've been working on adapting Triforce AC, uh, AFL uh, for NetBSD's kernel syscall fuzzing. This blog summarizes the work done until the second, sorry, second evaluation period as part of GSOC. If you want to see the first part, there's a link in the notes here. Uh, so for a feedback-driven mutation-based uh, fuzzer like Triforce, uh, fuzzing can be generally improved by providing it with proper input test cases. The fuzzer can then alter parts of the valid input, leading to more coverage and hopefully finding more bugs. The Triforce NetBSD syscall fuzzer itself um, was a working fuzzer at the end of the first evaluation, but it was missing some proper input generation uh, for most of those syscalls. Uh, a greater part of the time during this coding period was spent adding and testing basic templates for a majority of NetBSD syscalls. Scripts have also been added for cases where more complex input generation is required, uh, and this should now allow the fuzzer to find bugs that previously would not have found. So far, there are templates for 160 of the 483 syscalls in NetBSD, uh, like exit, fork, read, write, open, close, etc. Uh, so I have some interesting ones like compat underscore 50 underscore wait for, which is, you know, uh, the wait for syscall is compatible with NetBSD 5, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, but, you know, lots of other stuff like link, unlink, etc. Uh, there's a separate script called Gen2 uh, to generate trickier input cases for some other syscalls like bind, setsocopt, uh, connect, um, send to, receive from, mount, etc. Uh, so reproducibility. The fuzzer uses the simplest way to reproduce a crash, which is by storing the exact input for the test case that resulted in a crash. 
This input uh, can then be passed to a driver program, which will be able to parse the input and execute the syscalls that were executed to make the crash happen. A better um, prototype reproducer um, has been added to the fuzzer that provides a more human-readable and executable C code. Uh, this C code can be uh, compiled and executed to reproduce the crash. So um, if you give the developer some C code that crashes the system, it's a little easier for them than if you give them basically some assembly or something uh, that is much harder to read. So they have an example here uh, where you see a bit of C that uh, calls syscore uh, sysmincore uh, and that results in one crash or this other one where you do mprotect and then mincore, etc. Uh, they say the reproducers currently do not include the allocated memory and such, so not all reproducers will actually work. Uh, more improvements are to come, but this will hopefully make it much easier to uh, reproduce some of these crashes. Uh, and so they have some results of the fuzzing, uh, finding different syscalls causing problems. And lastly, uh, the Triforce NetBSD syscall fuzzer has now been available as part of package source in the work in progress tree. Uh, the package will require you install uh, Triforce AFL as well, uh, which was ported earlier as part of the project. And all the changes can be found in a GitHub repo with a link here. Ah, oh, great. So people can uh, look at that. Yeah. They also have a script recording. Uh, so if you're not aware, the script command allows you to record a bunch of uh, things you do on the shell. Um, a TypeScript recording of a working Triforce AFL fuzzer setup and execution is available. So if you want to follow along and be able to get it running on yours, then you can do that. And then they have a list of the future work that needs to be done, including restructuring the files. Currently, the file structure needs to be modified to suit the specific use case of the host and target being the same OS. Right now, files are separated into host and target directories, but that's not required. Uh, the testing and sanitizers are enabled. Uh, until now, the fuzzing uh, done was done without using the kernel address sanitizer or the kernel undefined behavior sanitizer. Testing with these enabled and fuzzing them uh, will be a major focus of the third coding period for Google Summer of Code. Improving the reproducer generator, as I talked about a minute ago, uh, some uh, there's some scope of improvement in the prototype added and incremental updates from there. Also, analysis of crash reports and fixing those bugs and writing up some more documentation on it. So in summary, so far, the Triforce NetBSD syscall fuzzer has been uh, made available in the form of a package source package with the ability to fuzz most of NetBSD syscalls. In the final coding period of GSOC, um, the plan is to analyze the crashes that were found up until now, integrate the sanitizers, and try and find some more bugs and finally wrap up with some detailed documentation. And uh, they would like to thank their mentor, Kamil Raitarowski, uh, for helping them with the process and guiding them and making this Google Summer of Code an excellent learning experience. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's always good to have good experiences from the students and outcome for the projects that is useful. Okay, uh, no week goes by when there's a new uh, vulnerability been discovered. <laughs> Our next item has something like that. Exploiting a no-name FreeBSD kernel vulnerability. Yeah, so this is over at uh, SysActive. Um, oh, SynActive? Yeah, sorry, SynActive, not SysActive. Oh, Syn oh, Syn and Ack and Tiff. Okay, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so this is uh, from a, uh, two weeks ago or so. Uh, a new patch has been recently shipped in FreeBSD kernels to fix a vulnerability, CVE 2019-5602, present in the CD-ROM device. Uh, in this post, we will introduce uh, the bug and discuss how you can exploit it in a post-SMEP FreeBSD version. A closer look at the commit that fixes the bug shows that uh, when invoking the IOCTL um, CDIOC read subchannel underscore sysspace, <laughs> data uh, is copied using the bcopy uh, function instead of the copyout primitive. Um, because I'm guessing the underscore sysspace part means it's supposed to be copying to a kernel buffer and it ends up not. Uh, this endows a local attacker belonging to the operator group with an arbitrary write primitive in kernel memory. Uh, so the following code is sufficient to provoke a kernel panic. More precisely, the kernel tries to fill uh, the data field residing at address zero with the subchannel data from the CD-ROM. Uh, this is at least true on uh, VMware virtualized environment where the SCSI CD-ROM driver emulates, uh, emulator returns four null bytes uh, that are filled by the kernel in the data field, yeah, even though there's no media actually in the CD-ROM drive. Please note that this may not be the case on a physical FreeBSD host. But basically, they open dev CD0, um, then set up an IOCTL to read um, four bytes uh, to the address null, uh, and when you run that, it will crash the machine. Oops, not good. Uh, first, we will consider an environment where SMEP is not supported or enabled. So that's some of the new uh, processor memory mitigation stuff. Uh, in this case, the exploitation is trivial. Uh, one can simply nullify the upper bytes uh, in the entry in the syscall table, map that address to userland, copy some shellcode there, and finally trigger code execution by invoking that corrupted syscall. In order to get this to work, we need to determine the address of the syscall table. Uh, or the specific entry you want to override. Namely, we need to resolve the address of the symbol SYSENT. Um, hopefully, FreeBSD provides a uh, useful, or sorry, helpfully. No, this is hopefully. Uh, FreeBSD provides a useful primitive to resolve kernel symbols, KLDSIM. Uh, hereafter, we rely on the snippet of code from uh, CTERT. Uh, if you remember one of the researchers working on FreeBSD stuff uh, a couple of years ago and his series of blog posts about FreeBSD kernel exploitation to resolve it. So they have a function called resolve, um, and they take the name of a kernel symbol called KLDSIM, and they will get back the address of that syscall, or that symbol in the kernel. Uh, and what you get back is a, a sysint, or struct sysint, which has uh, the number of arguments, the function that actually does the work, the audit events associated with it, and then any dtrace stuff and so on. Um, as we can see, if we corrupt the upper bytes of the syscall member, we can uh, redirect system calls to code mapped in userland. Basically, we overwrite the bit of memory that has the pointer to the function in the kernel that the syscall would normally invoke and make it invoke our own function over in userland. Uh, we chose to corrupt the no sys syscall, uh, so syscall number zero, uh, which only purpose is to print out a message saying that that's not a supported syscall. So it's what you do when you call a syscall that isn't, doesn't exist in the kernel. So they resolve uh, 
the address of the sysn, which is the syscall table. Uh, then they add uh, a couple of bytes to it or whatever, um, and call that same, the, the broken uh, IOCTL for the CD-ROM. And that will basically cause it to overwrite that much of the uh, syscall table with their data. So they just uh, set it up, uh, find the address of the gnosis syscall, uh, map their own function set up here. And then when they open CD0 and run their command here, they will overwrite part of uh, the gnosis system call with their own, a pointer to their own function. Uh, and then when that runs, it will run some code and uh, modify the credentials of the current process and set the UID, uh, run UID and run group ID to zero. Suddenly the uh, application will now be running as root. Hey, and that's the exploit. And once it's doing that, it can do whatever it wants. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, there's quite some uh, detailed uh, source code uh, there that reproduces that or a source code discussion. And so, yeah, you should check out the full uh, article if you're into this kind of uh, <laughs> exploit techniques or just wanted to know more details about the programming behind it. Yeah. So, they say, okay, that was the easy part. Well, now, how do we achieve code execution when SMEP is enabled? I think this is uh, where the processor enforces the, enforces the difference between kernel and userline code. Uh, our strategy is to create several processes and write randomly the kernel memory uh, with the hope to corrupt the UID of one of the forked processes. Our initial attempt was a total failure since in FreeBSD systems, unlike in Linux, the structure holding user credentials, UCred, is shared among all these uh, child processes. So they say, hopefully we can trick the system so that it creates a fresh UCred structure for each forked process by calling set UID uh, on the result of get UID. Um, so they say, now to maximize our chances of corrupting the UID, we adopt the following strategy. Uh, we fork, what would it be, 16,000 processes? Am I reading that right? Uh, for, yeah, this is. That'd be, no, 4,096 processes. I should have known. Oh, that, hex, sorry. yeah, it's ah, hex, yes. yeah. Uh, each process makes a call to set UID with the result of get UID to force the creation of a new uh, credential structure. It is essential to make this call after the creation of all the processes so that the UCred structures are sprayed continuously uh, in memory. As we can see from the figure below, uh, we obtain a large memory area of these credential structures. So you fork all the processes, then you set all their IDs so that those will all be in a nice contiguous block. Uh, once all those UCred structures have been created, the parent process invokes uh, periodically the vulnerable IOCTL, starting from a base address determined by uh, our debugging session. And each process checks in a loop to see if its UID has changed. So each of those 4,000 processes is like, am I root yet? Am I root yet? Am I root yet? <laughs> uh, well, the parent just goes basically wild, randomly <laughs> trying to overwrite uh, that structure and set some process to root. 
And uh, so with this proof of concept, they've successfully tested on the latest releases of FreeBSD. However, please note that the strategy is highly unreliable and will likely produce more panics than root access. Mm -hmm. Because you're literally just randomly overwriting bits of memory and hoping to hit um, the spot where uh, one of those credential structures are. Um, Yes, you are more likely to crash the... uh, the OS than you are to actually get root. But, you know, if you give it enough tries, eventually you might get root. Yeah. It's not the most reliable exploit, uh, but definitely a good discussion. That's if uh, SMEP is enabled and available. If it's not there uh, or not enabled, then this uh, exploit is quite reliable. Of course, if you've patched your FreeBSD, then the exploit doesn't exist anymore. Yes, run your... uh, periodic FreeBSD update, and uh, then you should be on the safe side if you uh, reboot between. So not just fetch, also install them, and then reboot if necessary so you have the latest FreeBSD version, as the FreeBSD version command will tell you. All right. Now we thought, hmm, let's do something different, at least, in this episode. Uh, because remember, oh, oh, a long while ago, uh, we had this interview with ourselves. People asked us questions, and we answered them. And we thought one of the questions that we got a little later was about uh, asking what kind of uh, gear we're going to take to a conference. And then we were like, oh, we actually never answered that. So this is um, <laughs> correcting this mistake. So we thought about listing all, or not all of it, but at least some of our interesting conference gear that we take to conferences um, that is vital more or less to us uh, to be on the road at the conference or um, keeping it close so that we uh, have it available when there is a need. And we split it up into uh, Alan's gear and my gear. So I've listed, I mean, I, I bring a lot of stuff besides clothes and uh, laptops, of course, or the one laptop that I have, um, the one old laptop, actually. Uh, so I picked three items that I think uh, will never, um, I will never be the same without. So the first thing is uh, that, I, that that's the, the recent one that I got, the, uh, the local me, it's called. Uh, it's a G3 mobile travel hotspot and power bank. So it's for the cases where you are in a different country that you've never been before, and you don't know whether your wireless provider gives you um, the proper roaming or if you have to pay horrendous uh, <laughs> connecting charges. horrendous rates for me. So that's why I have one of those. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Sometimes you can rent SIM cards at the airport and this little device can take foreign SIM cards up to two of them. And, but you don't have to. So it can also connect to the uh, GSM network uh, of over like 120 countries, according to the website. And um, initially when you buy this device, it's like, it's not cheap. It's like maybe like $200. I'm not sure. Uh, so it gives you an initial credit of one gigabyte worldwide. So you don't have to buy a separate uh, data package. You can just use up the one gigabyte package. Um, but if you're in a specific country and you run out of that package or want to be a little bit longer in that country, then you look at packages they provide. So they have different packages like, um, a full, uh, day of, uh, local, uh, connectivity to the internet for like, a very low price. And depending on the country, it's it's cheaper than buying a SIM card at the airport. 
And the nice thing is that this just um, translates the GSM into the Wi-Fi and you just pair it with your uh, phone and then this one gives you uh, mobility on the road with the local uh, network. It's also a power bank, so you can also charge your devices with it. Uh, it's a bit of heavy. It looks a little bit, uh, if you look on the website that we linked in the show notes, it looks a little bit like an older uh, iPhone, but it's very, very thick. That's where the battery goes. And um, it has a nice little uh, interactive screen where you can just select uh, what kind of network you want to be on, or you can also switch between the different SIM cards that are in there uh, if you have some. So that's kind of a cool thing to be uh, to have on the road. So I have something similar, a little bit different. I have a Huawei E5770, uh, which is a 4G LTE mobile Wi-Fi Pro thing. Uh, so same idea. It has a SIM card slot that you can put a SIM in. Um, it gives that off as Wi-Fi. It has an Ethernet jack in it, which you can use in one of two ways. You can plug your laptop into it to get on the network without using Wi-Fi, which can be faster and, you know, uh, if if you don't have a good Wi-Fi chipset and you're trying to use FreeBSD or something, it's handy. But you can also do, hey, my phone and my iPad and my laptop are all linked to this mobile Wi-Fi hotspot, but I'm in my hotel room. If the hotel room has wired Ethernet and I just plug it into this device, uh, it will save my data and use the hotel's wired Ethernet, uh, but I don't have to retrain all my devices. So it can become... A, a wired access point as well, so you can you can use it as a bridge to get on the Wi-Fi, uh, or you can use it um, to bridge the Wi-Fi to the wired LAN or whatever. Uh, and yes, you can charge it over USB, but you can also use it to charge your phone because it's a built-in battery pack as well. Both mine and Benedict's picks are uh, in the show notes with links to to buy them if you're interested. I think the Huawei one I bought was about 150 US. It doesn't come with any service or anything, but for that, I bought separately uh, uh, from a company called Always Online Wireless, a $5 SIM card that works in 90 countries. And you just go to their website and say, you know, I'm going to be in Belgium next week and I would like, you know, a gig of data for two weeks and it's like $15. Uh, or, you know, I need, uh, I want a month in Japan and it's this price. You can choose uh, by the day in blocks of like 500 megabytes or for a month uh, at different rates. So depending on how long you're staying, there's which one's the best is, is different. I like that because it means like as soon as I get off the airplane, I can get directions to things uh, rather than having to stumble around and try to find and buy a SIM card. Yes, yeah. You can have it right on the plane. Because the device would let me uh, just buy a SIM card and stick it in as well. If that is significantly cheaper than doing the prepaid thing, then that's an option. Uh, I always thought I mine was the, probably had every feature I could ever want, but having dual SIM slots seems really useful. <laughs> but mine doesn't have that, but yours does. Uh, mine has an SD card slot, which I'm not, like, I don't know if you can actually use it to store files or what. I've, I've not actually investigated that functionality. But uh, mine has a decent web interface, uh, and you can tell it about your data limits, and it will uh, stop you from going over if that you know is going to save you a lot of money or something. Yeah, there are a couple of options around, and uh, depending where you go or um, what kind of countries you, you frequent, that's certainly uh, good to compare prices for if your uh, normal provider doesn't uh, have it 
any uh, options in that country. Yeah. Uh, actually, I know in a, a recent trip to the US, a friend from Europe that was with me had some difficulty finding a reasonably priced SIM card in the US, uh, since most of them were targeted at people who live here and want a SIM card forever, rather than uh, somebody who wants a SIM card for two weeks and never wants to use it again. Yeah, that's uh, kind of bad. Uh, but, you know, doesn't want to spend 40 US dollars just to have data for 10 days. Mm. Yeah, so either people have to stick very close to you so that they can piggyback on your connection, uh, or you have to uh, jump through some hoops. But, you know, great way to make friends at a conference is be one of the people who has, has internets coming out of their backpack. <laughs> Follow me around, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Although I remember in Japan, I ended up... So I'd gone to Japan a number of times and rented one of these mobile Wi-Fi hotspots and found it very useful. So I went and bought one because uh, it's like, I want the same thing when I go to Europe and so on. And it's been very useful. Then when I went to Japan this year, I'm like, oh, I have to rent one anyway. Because turns out I'm going to need two. Yeah, you were not alone there. Yeah, <laughs> Since I, I was not alone and we weren't always going to be together, uh, it made sense to end up with two of them. Yes. So one in, as a spare is good to have in case the one one breaks. Uh, I will note that my one I owned is much newer and has a lot longer battery life than the rental one, which is a couple of years old and sees a lot more use than mine does. Yeah, yeah. it's not. Uh, it's probably a different pocket every week. Okay, so this is uh, our connectivity on uh, the road. And the next thing that I always carry with me, no, I, I basically don't take it out of my pocket because I also use it sometimes at work, is the Mojix Power Bagel. We auctioned one off uh, a while ago and uh, we actually met the lucky person who won the, this one. So this is uh, for people who have never heard it. It's the world's only power, travel power strip. So normally you go to a conference and there's not enough power for everyone, right? Uh, you either have to share or A, is your laptop charged already? Can I plug your out? You're, nah, it's not good. So bring a uh, power brick. But a power brick is big and bulky in your baggage and it's difficult to carry around. Might be some problems at the airport. So and check baggage. So that's bad. So with the Mojix Power Bagel, it's a rounded one. Yeah, so it's it's a power bar that's round, shaped like a bagel or a donut. Uh, in the center is the universal plug adapter that will make it fit whatever comes, whatever the wall socket looks like in the country you're in. Uh, and the power cord wraps around in the middle, uh, around the like the circumference of the the bagel. So you plug that into the wall, and then all around the outside you have power outlets that are. Um, uniquely shaped so that you can jam any country's plugs into it and it will power them. Uh, and I think it has a couple of USB outlets as well, right? Uh, yeah, two of them, USB 2 only at the moment. Right, but well, it, it, there's no data, so it doesn't matter if it's USB 2 or 3. But I guess what you mean is not USB-C. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you can also charge your phone and stuff off of it without an additional adapter. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the round of it makes it more likely you'll be able to plug a couple of things in without you know the big adapters blocking each other and so on yeah the bulky bricks that uh, people carry around but that's good so I had conferences where people I just plugged this in and three other people could share the power with me and charge their phones and laptops so that's very handy and at airports there's also maybe a shortage of power outlets so you can share it with other passengers uh, that's pretty nifty thing i heard that they also have a new um adapter in the middle 
that the second version that uh, offers even more country access. So um, I have to take a look at that. But so far, I, I bought two, and I'm pretty happy with. There's a there's a black one and there's a white one, and there's a US version that has mostly US uh, power out box in the middle. But the one that I have, the bagel, is the international one that has um, the multi power outlet. So I have two different things for my setup on this. Um, my the power the charger for my Lenovo uh, laptop. Uh, in Japan, I bought a replacement for the part that goes between the, the adapter brick and the wall. Uh, and instead of a standard US outlet, it has a thing that folds out into whatever different shape I need. Mostly it lets me plug into anything in Europe or the UK or North America or Japan or whatever. Uh, and that works nice. Um, or I have, you know, the regular wall warp plug adapters. Um, then the other thing I bought is it goes on the other side of the power brick uh, in line with the, no, sorry, which side does it go on? No, it goes on the, the wall side, never mind. But it, between the cable that goes to the wall and into the brick, you put this small insert, it's about this big, and it provides two Japanese outlets on the top and one on the bottom. Now, seeing as Japanese outlets are the same as American outlets, except for they don't have the ground prong, this means I can plug other devices in or other people can plug their laptop in. Doesn't help so much for my European friends uh, where their laptops have a ground pin, but for most North American laptops that have no ground pin, it means that they can actually steal off my plug adapter, basically. Uh, but I've also used it to plug in my little USB charging device to charge you know, my cell phone and that uh, 4G uh, Wi-Fi hotspot device. Um, and so that works nice as well. Uh, I've, in fact, once used it while not charging my laptop, actually, <laughs> uh, as an extension cord as well, just using the that bit of my uh, laptop charging stuff to be able to make the phone charger be able to reach to the bed because there was no plug near the bed and I needed my phone uh, to, to play my audiobook to fall asleep. And I needed to charge it while it was doing that. So yeah, uh, that's what I do for power. Yeah, that uh, I like devices that have uh, that are uh, short and uh, small and have multiple purposes. And uh, that's true with the power bagel. It's also true with this next one. It's a cable. It's a charging cable uh, on, at first sight. But you might think, ah, well, I have a thousand of those at home. But this one is different because I also have charging cables. I had once before those. Uh, but this one is nice. So this one is a, it's called a Charby Sense power cable. And this one is, has three distinct features that made it appealing to me. The, the first item is that it's longer than a normal charging cable. And um, the second thing is that it's uh, plug, uh, it's a USB on one side and the other one can have different outputs. I have the, uh, the iPhone charger, uh, that's the lightning cable. And I have another one for USB, uh, micro USB. Uh, but this one I can plug in in a USB and will always be right because this is universal plug. You can plug it in each, each side as you like and it will always fit. So this USB is not getting on your nerves. So it always be the first time, the correct time. And then the second thing, it has a little button on the side and it allows you, so if you plug in your uh, Say you plug in your uh, phone into your laptop and charge it this way. 
then uh, you can also transfer data with it. But with a press of a button, you can disable that data connection and let the charge run faster. So they have some uh, data on their website that shows that you can charge with this cable a little faster than with normal cables, You're pressing the button. And there's a light indicator that shows you whether it's a slow charging source, whether you can, uh, if you have pressed the button, that you're charging uh, twice as fast. And uh, it also automatically cuts off once the charge device is reaching 100%. So it's not, if you charge overnight uh, on the bedside table uh, and it reaches 100%, then you don't need to charge further and the uh, cable automatically cuts off the power supply so that the battery doesn't die as soon as other devices or as other cables do. So that's why I, I bought it. Uh, I've used it for a couple of uh, weeks now, and I will take it with me. It has a kind of a sturdier um, wiring, uh, some kind of Kevlar coating. So it's uh, a little bit... I think it's uh, just nylon, braided nylon. Yeah, or nylon. Yeah. So it's pretty sturdy and a little bit thicker, but that doesn't bother me. And it nicely folds together as a charger. What else is in my backpack? Um, an embarrassingly large number of USB thumb drives. Um, I didn't quite realize how many until I think it was two years ago or something leaving the UK. Uh, and they decided they wanted to wipe down everything remotely electronic in my bag for explosives or whatever. Uh, and the number of USB sticks was slightly embarrassing. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, and, uh, also it's like, I didn't think I had quite that many ethernet cables in my baggage and so on. Are you using the cables? Uh, you mean the USB? Yeah, the Ethernet ones. Well, oh, the Ethernet ones sometimes, yes. It's always a matter of, uh, you know, I might need one. Yeah, just take another one. <laughs> I carry around a little switch, so I'm always going to need some cables to... What's the point of having four switch ports if you only have one USB, uh, one Ethernet cable? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I remember at the, the Dev Summit in France, uh, I had three laptops all networked together doing stuff. And so, yes, that required three Ethernet cables. I also usually have a couple of protein bars in my bag because you never know. Uh, I think it was like, for example, at Fosdem, I was staffing the booth. Oh, yeah. I, there was no way I was waiting in line for an hour to get lunch. So it's like, I'm going to have a protein bar and eat lunch in a couple hours once the, the crowd dies down <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, and have something. Or actually, on the recent trip to California, we ate dinner a bit early. And so, you know, it was like 1030 and it's like, well, I'm not going to be able to go to sleep if I'm hungry. And I'm a little bit hungry. And so, you know, protein bar. Uh, we also both carry a little bit of support of VC3000 for after a conference when we gave a talk, we throw one in and our throat is not as sore as it was before. Well, in particular, uh, two or three years ago uh, at AGBSDCon, I woke up the morning of my talk with a horrible cold and almost couldn't talk. Uh, but after two VC3000, uh, which are these little cough drop type things that have 3000 milligrams of vitamin C, I was able to complete my talk uh, and uh, I was grateful for them. So yes, I always do have some of those on me uh, and I'm usually willing to share until the supply gets low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's also one of the reasons why we carry so many different things because at a conference, there's a huge... Uh, chance that something might break or a cable is not working anymore and then you can lend it to someone else or someone else has a uh, similar cable yeah like uh i think i for a couple of years i carried around one of the adapters you needed to connect a mac to the projector 
even though I didn't own a Mac because it was just handy to be able to lend it to people. Uh, of course, my newer Mac uh, needs something different. Uh, and mostly I present up my FreeBSD laptop that has native HDMI and I don't need any adapters and it's quite good. Uh, I also usually do have uh, melatonin capsules, which just uh, you put one or two of these under your tongue and let them dissolve and it helps you fall asleep. Very useful for trying to get to sleep on the plane or even in the hotel after you've landed. Uh, basically tricks your body into thinking it's time to go to bed. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a sleeping pill and doesn't do that. It just is some of the chemical your body naturally releases when it thinks it's time for bed. Yeah, the internal clock. Uh, so it just helps a little bit. It's it's much more mild than something like a sleeping pill, which can make you groggy and so on. Mm. To avert some of the jet lag. Yeah. And other than, you know, a toothbrush, there's uh, not much else in my backpack, except for, I guess, my two laptops. I have a Lenovo X270, uh, which runs FreeBSD 13. I bought the version with the biggest six cell cylinder battery. Between that and the three cell in the front of the laptop, uh, get somewhere between eight and 12 hours of battery life, depending how heavy you're running it. If you're running Build World the whole time with Turbo Boost on, you're only going to get about five hours. But uh, even that for FreeBSD is quite good. Oh, yeah, that's decent. In addition to the regular Lenovo charging port, it can also charge off USB-C, which is super helpful. Uh, and yes, between my phone, my Mac, and this all charging of USB-C, I often only uh, really worry about having the one charger. Uh, and then yes, the the Mac, uh, I've still kept my promise. I've never bought a Mac. Uh, <laughs> but at yeah. uh, VBSDCon 2017, CDW donated a 2016 MacBook Pro to the conference uh, to do as a door prize raffle thing. It was, uh, they filled a flower vase with computer parts uh, and electronic things, everything from like little diodes and resistors up through sticks of RAM and and a heat pipe uh, heatsink thing from a server, uh, all jammed in this uh, jar. And it was, can you guess the number of jelly beans in the jar or the number of individual components uh, in this jar? And uh, my guess was the closest to right. I think I guessed... Um, 384 plus 2, in case anybody else guessed 384. Uh, and I think the correct answer was uh, 402 or something like that. Uh, and so I won the laptop. Uh, I use it mostly for email and video conferencing and stuff. You had to get used to that one first, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm still not used to it. Uh, if, if you've seen, for example, um, I used it when leading a dev summit. I will use it to run the projector so I can have my laptop and do my work on it. Um, and I'm like, hey, Brad, or somebody who knows how to Mac, how do you make this thing not go to sleep every 15 minutes? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> why is the screen not working? <laughs> it's like, put me in front of a FreeBSD machine and I can do whatever I want. The Mac is still very much a learning experience. Again, partly because I only use it when I'm traveling. Because otherwise, I'm sitting at my nice computers. Uh, you know, even, even my laptop uh, for work stuff, I, it gets a little more use now because it has all the VPN software and stuff installed on it. Uh, but in general, uh, I use a desktop when I'm at home. And so my laptops only get used at conferences. Uh, but yeah, so the Mac, uh, you know, it resumes a bit faster and so on. So I use it uh, to do email and video conferencing and some of the Microsoft-y stuff I have to do for work. Um, uh, mostly I use that to save my battery and uh, be able to use the FreeBSD machine to do FreeBSD stuff. 
but I, I do try to always do my presentations off my FreeBSD machine. Uh, and in general, works more reliably. <laughs> Mostly because I can, I can get the screen set up the way I want easily, whereas on the Mac, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, how do I do this thing? Yeah. So if you have something that we should always uh, bring or couldn't live without, or what, what's your saber at uh, any conference or on the road, then, hey, send this to us. Uh, might be interesting to, to have a look at it and maybe have it as a some kind of feedback and questions. Uh, if you have an interesting item, gadget, gear, whatever, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv as a link or a link to the manufacturer website or a little photo, and then we can cover it in a future episode and other people could also benefit from seeing what cool things uh, you can take on the road. All right, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we found an item or a YouTube video, more like, uh, about replacing the Unix tradition with a warning, maybe rage-inducing. Um, but uh, you can take a look at that uh, video if you're uh, looking at uh, some of the replacements um, or to spark some discussion, uh, a civilized one. Um, so that's this video. And then we have installing OpenBSD over remote serial on the Atomic Pi. A very small one. Uh, but yes, they're using serial to do the install. It's uh, quite interesting. There's a video, uh, or a pair of videos, and then there's some pictures with more detail showing it looks like they had to make the cable they needed to connect to this thing. Oh, I think it's because it has, um, I don't know. That's not that, okay. I thought it was one of those that has serial over the audio port, which is always interesting, but that's not this. Hmm. Oh, it's very tiny. Okay, yeah, so look at that if you're interested in a tiny little board running OpenBSD. Yep, and basically they show how to actually install OpenBSD on it, and then they actually show it running with the uh, NeoFetch. Ah, yes, there's a screen. <laughs> nice. Uh, then we have Zen 2 and Dragonfly uh, over at Dragonfly BSD Digest. Uh, they report that it's supported, and given how well Dragonfly supports SMP and the number of processors, Zen 2 supports, it's a no-brainer if you're in the market for a new server. Yeah, so the new AMD Zen 2 architecture, I think, goes up to like 64 cores or something. Uh, and so, yes, it'd be quite interesting to see uh, how well Dragonfly does at that compared to other OSs that haven't spent quite as much time on SMP. And... Uh... We also have improved docking on FreeBSD. So it's not uh, what you think it is. It's not about Docker. It's about um, connecting your beloved ThinkPad to your docking station, the Ultrabase in this case. Uh, it's the X220 in that uh, specific example. Yep. So uh, Yuki says this is first baby steps into FreeBSD development. They say that they love their ThinkPad X220 and their Ultrabase docking station. Uh, which adds DisplayPort, keyboard, mouse, Ethernet audio, etc., as already connected to this convenient dock, and all I have to do is stick my laptop in it. That really makes the experience a lot better since I'm currently a student and sometimes have to bring my laptop to school, but when I come home, uh, my workstation is all set up. Uh, so they say, on Windows, when I dock my machine, it automatically switches the monitor as per my configuration and changes the audio device. However, on FreeBSD, nothing happens. Well, some stuff does happen in the background, but it doesn't actually change anything. 
particularly what FreeBSD does is only change the value of the ACPI underscore doc variable uh, status from zero to one, saying you are now docked. Uh, so what can we do about this? We can always have a while loop that checks ACPI underscore doc dot zero dot status indefinitely, but that kind of dislike it. So since FreeBSD 5, FreeBSD has had a tool called DevD that basically get event notification when things on the system change and you can configure whatever you want to happen then. Uh, basically, we can run userland programs uh, whenever a kernel event happens, like when you enable Bluetooth uh, or in this case, when you dock your laptop. Uh, they say it's the equivalent to UDEV on Linux, but a lot saner. So why don't we take advantage of this? Uh, so after Googling around for solutions, I stumbled upon uh, an email in a thread on the FreeBSD-Mobile list about ACPI doc and DevD. In that thread, uh, a user wrote a diff that adds a call to tell DevD when uh, the machine is docked and undocked. Well, the diff kind of worked as is, but we need to make a couple changes uh, to match you know, today's version of DevD, which is a bit different than when the patch was written. Uh, they contacted the original author if he wanted to get the patch submitted himself, but didn't receive a response, so submitted it to the FreeBSD Bugzilla. And he also put it up on his personal GitLab. Uh, and basically, they say you make uh, you match when ACPI subsystem doc has this problem, or sorry, when it changes from zero to one or one to zero, it will call the script etc uh, ACPI underscore doc and the value that I switched to. And then in that script, you can just say, hey, uh, we're now docked or we're undocked and make the changes that are required. Uh, you know, we change the audio device without needing to be inside the X server, uh, or you can set display equals colon zero and then run programs uh, and so on. So they made a program called doc-trigger, which is another POSIX shell script that listens for the USR1 signal. Uh, and when it gets it, it uh, does what it needs to do. Cool. That might be useful to a couple of people with docking stations. Yep. So they switch the sound unit over. They run XR&R to switch it to uh, turn the display port off and switch the internal to auto and so on. Uh, and they reset their polybar um, display bar tool and uh, update their window manager and so on. Or, uh, I guess, yeah, when they dock it, they will um, switch the display port on and the built-in screen off, and so on. Yeah, definitely. Nice to have. And uh, we want to remind you about two upcoming conferences in the BSD space. The first is VBSDCon from September 5 to the 7th uh, in Reston, Virginia. Uh, the early bird ends August 15th. Maybe by the time this show airs. Is yes. So if you want to save $25 off the price, you need to register soon or now. Yeah, like stop the recording and uh, listen to it later and after you registered, continue. Um, while you're on the subject of registering, there is two weeks later, EuroBSDCon 2019, uh, from September 19 to the 22nd in Lillehammer, Norway, this year. We're traveling around every year with EuroBSDCon. Yeah, we've we've told you about this one a couple of times, and it turns out you've probably missed the early bird price. Uh, but hurry up, because the late price keeps going up. And <laughs> so register now. Yeah, you you want to be there. Yeah, 
don't miss this conference. So it's time to get right into our feedback and questions for this week. And uh, we have a little message from our very own JT with congrats in the subject. Goes like this. Congratulations, guys. We did it. Since we've run out of questions, it's obviously logical to assume that we've answered them all and there are no more questions remaining. Otherwise, someone would have emailed them in, right? So, it's only logical that we've answered every BSD question ever. Group high five, take a break, sit back, let out a sigh, and bask in the knowledge that there are no more questions left. Yes, uh, this is a very empty segment at this point um, because we don't have anything from you. Yeah, well, it turns out uh, recording a lot of episodes all at once results in uh, burning through the, the little bit of feedback we get <laughs> a little quicker. Yeah, we're draining that quickly. So don't let us sit on the dry uh, for long. Uh, anything in the BSD world, any question, any comment that you have about the show, any ideas, topics... Maybe your um, gear discussions that we had in this episode a little earlier or stories that you always wanted to mention. Send all of this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. It's feedback at bsdnow.tv, a very short, memorable email address where you can send all this thing. And then we have something to fill future episodes. Uh, that's why at this point uh, we're done with this one. And uh, thanks for listening as always. And see you, hear you, whatever, next time. <laughs>